Good morning. I am your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the July 14, 2015 edition of Ask a Leader. As to our great big nearby world today's show, UCI Director Eli Simon and UCI Professor Julia Lepton will cover this summer's New Swan Theater offerings, Much Ado About Nothing and Macbeth both set in some fresh and modern settings. Then we'll hear from curator Barbara Pollock about the current Orange County Museum of Art exhibit, which she has curated entitled My Generation, Young Chinese Artists. Actually, they're not so young. They're in their 30s and 40s. So we'll be right back after a very short station break. Welcome back to the show. It's summertime once again, and what's that sound we hear outdoors? It's the uh, thespians adjusting their cod pieces. It's more like Macbeth figuring out uh, where in the Habsburg Empire his next rival is that he's going to off. So my first guests are UCI professors Eli Simon and Julia Lupton. Eli Simon is the artistic director of New Swan Shakespeare Festival, a chancellor's professor of acting in the Department of Drama. Now, Eli's tw- it's the 27th year, I'm going to add on the year from last year of his introduction, at UC Irvine, where he served as head of acting and chair of drama. Eli's put it all down in his three books entitled The Art of Clowning, Masking Unmasked, and Power speech. His theatric range spans Shakespearean productions, clowning musicals, and original masked performances. Eli's directed over 100 productions at major Shakespearean festivals, regional theaters, and international theaters across the states and overseas. Critically acclaimed productions include his original two-part clown saga. And I want to see—I want to see those clowns do a, like a wrenching tragedy. And we'll talk about that. Uh, War of the Clowns and Clown Aliens, which is currently being produced by the National Theater of Romania in Cluj. I hope I've got that right, Romanians out there listening. Eli's original clown troupe. Clownzilla has played in California, Korea, and Italy, and his original Comedia Productions the World Round. For New Swan Shakespeare Festival, Eli has directed The Merchant of Venice, King Lear, and Twelfth Night. Eli received his Bachelor's of Arts and Drama from UC Davis and a Master's of Fine Arts in Acting from Brandeis University. Also joining us is Julia Lupton, Professor of English at UCI, where she teaches Shakespeare. Her research interests include Renaissance literature, religious studies, humanities, and the public sphere, design, and everyday life. She is the author of several books and many articles on Shakespeare, including Thinking with Shakespeare, published by the University of Chicago Press, Essays on Politics and Life. Her current project is entitled Shakespeare Dwelling, Habitation, Hospitality, Design. Julia is also a trustee of the Shakespearean Association of America. She completed her Ph.D. at Yale University in Renaissance Studies. As in previous summer seasons at the New Swan Festivals, she is organizing and presenting a host of seminars, which about which we'll give a brief mention because we are so full of, of what to cover uh, in the way of, of character treatment and logistics and all that they're conquering there on that, at that beautiful theater. Both Eli Simon and Julia Lupton join me in Studio A. Welcome back, both of you, to Ask a Leader. Thank you very much. Claudia, it's wonderful to be here. Yeah. Hi, Claudia. Hi, hi, hi. Well, this this is getting to be a delicious habit. The New Swan Theater presenting Shakespeare, this being the fourth year, promising 
alumni guest artists and current students spanning three decades of training at UCI Drama, doing a pretty decent job in realizing these poignant and compelling plays. Congratulations to you two as well, um, to where uh, Beth Lopes, uh, who's going to be doing, she's directing Much Ado About Nothing. She's in L.A. right now. Uh, congratulations to all of you on launching uh, the season last Friday. The, this ends uh, on August 30th, but I think we're going to get an extension, Houston, are we not, so, uh, on some of the, the, the production? You mean past August 30th? Yes. Not possible. Our no. actors have to go back to their homes okay. in other states. So ticket sales are final. And they are The ticket sales are brisk. So this keep in mind while you're listening to these compelling contributors uh, in uh, this festival. So uh, deceit, jealousy, trust, and integrity. Gee, where do we start with that? those themes? So uh, you've set Macbeth. In uh, during World War One, and much ado will be set after World War Two. So, where are both of these plays? That's the part I don't yet know. By where do you mean where are they located? Where are they located within the, those realms? Okay, Correct. well, much ado is located on a Hamptons estate in New York, and Macbeth is set in Europe, but in a in an undisclosed country, it's world. It's European. It's it's, it's World War One. They're not speaking with European accents, but the flavor and the look of the show is very much of that time and era. And what was your thinking, Eli, about setting those using those modern settings? Well, for Macbeth, I began really with the witches, as I think you need to with this play. You have to figure out... So does he start with them? Yeah, you ha- they, he starts with them, and you kind of have to figure out who they are when yes. you're directing this play. So for me, because this play takes place during a war, I wanted to select a war that was horrific and a war that included things like poison gas, which I equate with the fog of the witches scenes i really started there that was how i selected world war one i also wanted a period in which swords were used and would be logical uh within the the realm of that world and it's turned out to be i think a beautiful production in terms of the costuming and the use of weapons and we have quite a bit of fog and a little bit of uh, lightning, strobe lights, so there's it's it's effects heavy as well. Oh my word! Okay, and um, th- and for the Hamptons, I was wondering if uh, the GI Bill was going to be a, a part of the uh, after post war. So when I, I was thinking of what were the sounds of the Codbys shifting and uh, Macbeth with this Habsburg Empire map, and I was thinking of, and people that are at the um, with much ado looking at their uh, what their GI benef- Bill benefits are going to cover in their. Uh, in their uh, uh, multi-layered plot uh, twists with um, their lives there. Well, uh, Much Ado situates very nicely in the post-World War II era. As the soldiers come back, in the beginning of the play, they're really wondering about losses, and that was a horrific war. Uh, One of the first lines is, how many men have been lost in this affair? And there's a feeling in the play of of joyful arrival from the war from from war from the fields of war and the sense that the world has to be populated and it's really very close in our minds to the baby boom and what happened right after that war and this this feeling of frivolity that 
people almost needed that release after being through such terrible, uh, uh, terrible, terrible skirmishes and so much death and destruction within that war. So this is for both of you, especially, I guess, the director and Eli's. I'm wondering about the difference uh, between these two plays, if the factors of proximity and intimacy in the theater pose different issues for Macbeth and Much Ado. Is, maybe Much Ado is more relatable and Macbeth more imposing of a project for the audience to, to buy in and swallow and chew and spit out. That's a really great question and a great point to bring up. Our theater is extremely intimate. For those who have been in it, they know that they're very, very close to the actors. And if you're just joining us, I think you'll be surprised at how close you really are to the action, to the words, the thoughts, the deeds of those that are on stage really right next to you, not out in front of you somewhere. And so for that reason, I think Macbeth is much more confronting in a way than Much Ado. In Much Ado, you you really feel kind of delightfully brought along on this ride. And that's kind of what I think happens with the comedies in our space. There's a certain synergy of laughter and of joyfulness that's generated. Absolutely. I'll speak to that um, from my own experience as a patron. And that's what I'm wondering with the tragedy. Like, I don't know. I can go there with these characters. Well, in, a, in an intimate space, it's less about spectacle, and it's mm-hmm. more about what happens with the characters psychologically. Yes. And that's what we've really attempted to define with Macbeth. We're trying to track their psychological bearing and disintegration, really, after they do their evil deed. What happens with them? And you can really watch this this evolution and disintegration as it occurs. Maybe Julia would like to speak a little bit more about that. Okay, Julia Lupton? Yeah, well, I mean, Macbeth is an amazing play because it's on the one hand, you know, very very full of action and, uh, you know, murder happens early on in the play and then various other murders flow out of that. And so it's very exciting uh, it's one of the shortest plays that Shakespeare yes. wrote, um, and it really, really flows. I love teaching it for that reason because there's, there's really there's no dead time in the play. It's just it's really action. It's also, along with Hamlet, one of Shakespeare's most psychological plays. It's the darkest. Um, you know, it's, it really is about the evolution of a murderous intention. I see it as Shakespeare's Breaking Bad. You know, like Walter White. You know, Macbeth is a decent guy at the beginning of the play and uh, perhaps somewhat constrained in terms of his opportunities for advancement, but he's a company man. You know, he's part of the military structure. He he does his job well. And wow. uh, he then, you know, encounters these witches who, you know, externalize for him a set of of ambitious and ultimately murderous possibilities and there are, you know, of course, other factors as well, such as his wife, who abets, you know, his ambition as it, as it, you know, is hatched in those early scenes with the witches and with Duncan. So this breaking bad of Macbeth is uh, very, very powerful. And I think it speaks very much to interests that we still have in how decent people can become monstrous 
and, and that's something you know we care about. That's our, our own nightmare. We're you know we're tempt. We might not be tempted to do murder, but we're tempted to to cheat in little ways, to lie in little ways, to overstep. You know, and we see how that can happen, and that's really the psychological drama is is watching that process of Breaking Bad. So I'm I'm glad we're talking about this. I really wanted to open all the way up what the 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 sort of dynamic between what the three word sisters or the witches. I guess that we, they go back and forth in terms of how they're uh, they're labeled, but uh, that they 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 don't. That, I mean, they they're suggestive. They're not they're not leading him. He hears in the 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 sort of hints the inferences from them he takes it to uh, what he he does have free will he has to have free will as a tragic figure so the interplay between those two entities it's very important how we understand Macbeth chooses to interpret the way they lay out this very obscure but he thinks very certain kind of trajectory that he sees himself on Absolutely. And there was a tradition in the 19th century, for example, of identifying the three witches with the three fates and really trying to see this as a Greek play. But in Greek tragedy, free will is not the dominant theme. And it's really in post-classical or Christian tragedy that the emphasis is on the, um, the moral choice and moral scope of the actor. And Macbeth, you know, very much unfolds in that space of post-tragic or post-classical, at least, freedom. Right. And so the witches are, are, you know, they're dark forces, perhaps satanic, uh, laying out these suggestions. But in no way do they cause... Macbeth to do what he does, and in no way are Macbeth's decisions inevitable. And that's what Shakespeare shows us, the, the, the mix of, of psychological deliberation and external prompting and plotting, as well as the role of occasion and opportunity. You know, when Duncan says, I'm going to come <laughs> and stay in your house, that is a golden opportunity that the Macbeths are not able to resist. And so there's this this mix of circumstance, occasion, internal intention, the partnership of the husband and wife and their complex dynamics of love and um, you know perhaps sexual frustration and arousal and those elements as well. And all of that becomes a perfect storm uh, for the, the, the two actors, main actors. So, uh, from your first productions uh, so far, I think you, one Macbeth. Are, are you you're monitoring the audience? Are, how are they getting? Pretty squeamish? Are they? What's the body language, including the Chancellor? You were watching him a little bit. I know he was there that night. Well, the Chancellor came to see Much Ado About oh, Nothing. Oh, that's right. He was at the other play. Okay. <laughs> so he's uh, he's waiting to see the the gore of Macbeth. Uh, so far, everybody seems to be taking it pretty much in stride. I think with the kinds of films that we're used to, to now and and how common death is on our screens, both in television and film. There's nothing really about this play that would shock an audience. But it's interesting, again, to watch the characters go through their machinations and figure out why they're doing what they're doing and what the effect of their deeds 
has on them. And, and this is a very, very active play. It's deeply psychological, but as Julia, as Julia said a moment ago, it's extremely active. It moves quickly. It's kind of like a freight train into the heart of darkness. It moves very quickly. And so you have to keep your eyes and ears open. And that's one thing I watch for with our audience. They do seem yes. to be very attentive. I think also in our little theater, you you can't really... You can't really fall asleep. You can't go away. The The theater calls for your engagement. And the actors are extremely aware of the audience's presence. So in a very large proscenium stage, the actors might take an aside sort of up into the lights or into the heavens. But in the New Swan Theater, the actors will take their asides directly to to members of the audience. So in a way, everyone's complicit with Macbeth as yes. he plans his murder. He's working it out with the people that are there. Uh, and that, for me, creates a very exciting kind of theater, both for the actor that feels the energy of the audience, and I think as well for the audiences that come. It's a different experience watching Shakespeare in our theater. I, I guess I want to bring up that you were talking about uh, the exposure we have so many of us to uh, generally uh, in, in the media currently, but I'm thinking it uh, make what makes your job more uphill to make this uh, tragedy so much more compelling is how Roman Polanski nailed it with, uh, with his film version after his wife's macabre killing. And so uh, I... I think that that he was so steeped in the the weird and the macabre in that particular production. It's it makes it uh, it's a tall order to try to uh, lay over your own production, but the, the the intimacy is helpful in in getting, as you said, everybody to buy in with this murder plot with every aside. It's a, if they're not he- hearing, they're maybe feeling the spit, um, you know, for those that are close enough. So you were you're going to add one more thing. I would just say about that that. Because we're in a small space, it it calls to the actors for a deep sense of truthfulness. Yes. And we know that the audience can tell if an actor is making their moment or faking their moment. And that's the first thing I tell our actors. You're going to have to be there. You're going to have to live it because everyone will see and you are surrounded on all sides. So there's no escape. Uh, the theater itself is like a truth meter. And in film, you can take, you can retake, you can try it again until you get it right. Theater's just not like that. So the actors, they have to be living the moment every single night that they get up there. That's the challenge, and it's the beauty. Well, live radio feels a little like that, too. (laughs) It's much like live radio, isn't it? (laughs) A lot. Well, for those of you who've just joined us, my guests in this portion of the show are Eli Simon, directing Macbeth, and UCI Shakespeare expert Julia Lupton, lecturing, and both of them offering their general guiding hands at this summer's program at the New Swan Theater Festival, running now until August 30th. There are no extensions. Ticket sales are brisk, and I just want to quickly say NewSwanShakespeare.com is the website to find out if you've uh, got a few tickets left. But what I'm always hastening to say every year we talk about this is if you think you see on the website that particular night is sold out, it's really worth a gamble to come to the theater and uh, watch for a release of tickets because there always are ones. And if you just have a a picnic, you can 
Uh, you can wait it out for those tickets while you're having picnic. There's there's nothing uh, there nothing ventured, nothing gained. Julie was going to talk to that exactly. Yeah, I just wanted one of the things we really are excited about this year is that Illuminations, which is the Chancellor's Arts and Culture uh, Program, uh, is sponsoring Student Rush. And so, if you are a UCI student, including a summer school enrolled student. Please come to the New Swan at 7.30 p.m. before the performance and line up, and you are likely to get a seat that the university will pay for uh, through the Illuminations program. That, so that's a free, a free seat if you're a UCI student. So we're really excited about that. We've had about five students a night that we've been able to seat. That's in a theater of 120, so we're really happy. We really want Shakespeare to be something that UCI undergraduates, as well as the community, will have a chance to experience. Wow, that is remarkable. So uh, that is going to create a ticket sale rush then for people that they realize, well, maybe there isn't going to be that availability. So, so everybody line up on the website and line up outside in the, the picnic area. Well, uh, we've talked a bit about the Weird Sisters. There's a lot of other things that you've had to uh, address. There's Banquo's ghost. There's this dagger that's sort of shimmering in in uh, in leading Macbeth around. There's some very ingen- uh, ingenious, genius solutions. I, I'm going to want to talk us around the edges so we don't give much away, but I guess Eli's willing to do a, a few a few spoilers uh, for how, he, because this, there, it's, it's, this isn't digital, this is live. I'm happy to give our listeners a few things to look for in advance of seeing the production in the theater. To begin with, we are using our witches as a, as a kind of fabric to weave the play together. You can watch for them creating a percussion score by playing various pieces of jagged metal that are embedded in the theater and by playing smaller roles throughout the play. In the play itself, there are servants, there's a doctor... There are uh, minor characters that inhabit the world, and I decided early on that I wanted a small, tight company this summer. I didn't want 25 actors in the company, but rather the 15 for Much Ado and 18 that we have for Macbeth. And in our production, the witches play all of those little roles, so you feel them kind of coming in and out of Macbeth's world. They're surrounding him both psychologically and physically throughout the play. I think that it creates a very interesting milieu. I mean, you have to decide when you come to see it if it works for you. Uh, But uh, for me, it uh, really ties the play together and gives it a certain sense of impending doom and force. With this, with the mustard gas and all that, I'm just imagining you surrounding audience members too. But don't don't say that. I want people to feel creeped out when they realize they are ne- as near the weird sisters as Macbeth might be. So we're we're not going to do. That. So I tried to tell myself forty times not to bring up the porter scene, but I I know there must be a porter scene. Is it Julia the most? famous uh, demonstration of what, what comic relief is in an oppressive tragedy. Yes or no, there is a porter scene. We absolutely kept the porter, and he is funny. 
He has to be. So it's a there's a huge debate among scholars as to whether this scene should even be in the play. They say it's I th- an interpolation. In I some think of- it's very important. I mean, for one, you have to give Macbeth, just practically speaking, you have to give him enough time to get out of his bloody clothes and into another costume. <laughs> Ready but, for dinner. <laughs> so that's... Shakespeare was very practical in this way. He was an actor, and he knew that he had to rest his leads at certain points. But also, it's just a wonderful time for the audience to have a a giggle. They need a break. I mean, Duncan the King has just been stabbed to death in his bed. Our lead characters have come out covered, splattered with blood. It's pretty gory, and it's very serious. And then out of this comes the porter scene yes and the porter is the only comic relief in the play it's come it comes at the perfect moment when the audience just needs that release in my mind it's perfectly written what do you think julia well i i love it in the text and i love it in performance and you'll really enjoy uh it's it's ryan is playing this part is that correct Mm -hmm. And he's also the Benedict in uh, Much Ado About Nothing. And by the way, I should also mention that Lady Macbeth is also Beatrice. Oh, really? So if you go to both productions, you're going to... One of the great things about New Swan is it's genuine repertory theater. And and the plays gain meaning from seeing these actors crossing over and taking different roles. So Ryan is hysterical. And the audience was in just raptures with the, the... drinking jokes, the sex jokes, um, the, the physical humor that Ryan yes. brings to it. The burlesque of uh, it all. It's very, he, he really lets it, he lets it go and lets it be what it can be, and it's really a great achievement. Well, along with the plays, we have a lecture series and a music series. So Julia is going to be speaking on Saturday night uh, strictly about Macbeth, and I'm sure none of what you're saying today is going to be included in the lecture, maybe a little bit of it. <laughs> but uh, so there's, there's so much to say. We, as I was mentioning prior to going on uh, live here, uh, we could talk about Macbeth from now until New Year's. Uh, so the the lecture series will start, I believe, with your piece, and that's right outside the theater, starting yes. at around 7? Yeah, we'll actually start speaking a little bit after 7, and so we want people to gather around 7 and we'll have seminars many Saturdays. Uh, the, the complete listing is available online at the New Swan website, also the UCI Shakespeare Center website. And uh, we're also doing a Shakespeare weekend, which is August 15th and 16th, which will be an afternoon of study with scholars and theater practitioners, followed by the opportunity to view the play. And the scholarly part is all free to the public. You don't have to have a ticket that night. You do have to buy a ticket if you want to see the plays. Right. Those are not included. But that, a lot of people are going to come who will already have seen the play and want to be involved in the discussion and activities around it. And we'll also have a, a self-hosted dinner at Tender Greens in between the seminars and the performance for people to get to know each other and talk about you know, their experiences. So this is our first year doing Shakespeare Weekend. That's August 15th and August 16th, one day for each play. And if a success, then we'll do it every year. So we're really interested in, in feedback and, and interest levels in that. We're also bringing back our First Folio Fridays. UCI owns a copy of Shakespeare's First Folio, which was the collected works of his plays put forward after his death by his colleagues and friends. 
And there's about 250 copies of the first folio in the world, and UCI happens to own one. Wow. And so we're really happy each summer now. This is our second year doing this. We work with special collections. Uh, they, they curate uh, an exhibit for us of their various holdings, including the first folio. I give a little talk about the history of the first folio, and then we bring patrons into special collections to actually see Uh, these great artifacts. And Robert Cohen will be joining us for one of these sessions talking about 50 years of drama at UCI in honor of the 50th anniversary of the university. So we love our partnership with the libraries, and we invite people to come. These are, of course, free of charge to come and see the first folio on, on two Fridays in August. Very lovely. For those that you have just joined us, my guests for this portion of the hour are UCI professors leading the production of this summer's New Swan Shakespeare Theater Festival, Eli Simon and Julia Lupton. We're talking about besides the plays, there are lectures, and then there also are the Music Mondays. Those are separate ticket sales. This is Adding to the Mozart Monday on August 24th, two other lovely pieces I'm sure Eli will tell us about. Well, last year we had such a great time with Mozart Monday that we then called it Mozart Monday 1 because we have Mozart Monday 2. And this features members of the L.A. Philharmonic in a string quartet. And we're adding a clarinet player so that we can have the clarinet quintet. And Mm. we also, prior to that, and these are all on Monday nights, uh, we have uh, Las Colibri Mariachi Band. This is an all-female mariachi band that's going to come to the New Swan Shakespeare Festival. And as well, we have Max Hamer Jazz Trio. So we have... With special guests. With special guests. So we have three Music Mondays. We have Mariachi. On the August 3rd. Max. On August 17th. And Mozart Monday. August 24th. And they all, all of these start with M, Music Monday, Mariachi, Max, Mozart, and Much Ado, and Macbeth. So it's a big M summer. I don't know what to make of that, but... Mighty good. Mighty good. Massively. Maximal. So ticket sales are getting brisk, as we talked about, and the student rush begins at 7.30 outside the New Swan Theater there on that lovely terrace between the main library and the the former student union, I guess. And so I'd, I'd like to close and thank both Eli, Simon, and Julia Lupton for your time. I know you've got such a huge schedule going on, and coming down here to give me some of your time is very generous of both of you. Thank you so much for coming down. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here, Claudia. We hope we'll see everyone at the Swan. At, at the Swan, and we'll see you next year with the next program. But for now, good luck. I'm holding tickets for later in August, and I can't wait to be just flattened and and lifted. We look forward to welcoming you and everyone else. Okay, thank you so much. All the best. It's a Hildegard Kneff with Mac the Knife. Und die Sind im Licht, doch man sieht nur wie im Licht, wie im Dunkeln sieht man nichts, doch man sieht nur die im Licht, die im Dunkeln sieht man nicht.
Thank you for staying with us for the uh, next part of the show. It's, we're going to bring on a really lovely local exhibit here that I want everybody to uh, take in. Welcome back. Well, they're delicate, they're fly, they're sophisticated, they're political, they're technically deft with a brush, power tools, the cake decorator, or a firearm, which, by the way, is very hard to get hold of in the People's Republic of China. I'm talking about the array of Chinese artists whose work is curated by Barbara Pollock at the exhibition entitled My Generation, Young Chinese Artists, now showing through October 11th at the Orange County Museum of Art in Newport Beach. This is the only stop that the exhibit is making on the West Coast. My guest, Barbara Pollock, is an author, art critic, professor, and curator living in New York City. She's an authority on Chinese contemporary art and wrote the book, The Wild Wild East, An American Art Critic's Adventures in China, or Meat Paint Love, I might call, wonders could be called. A contributor to the New York Times and contributing editor at Art News, Barbara Pollock has covered the Chinese art scene for these publications since 1996, as well as Vanity Fair, Departures, Art and Auction, and Art in America, to name a few. She is also a regular contributor to the Chinese language versions of the New York Times, Art Newspaper, and to Modern Weekly, China's leading lifestyle magazine. Barbara Pollock has written monographs on slightly older, more established artists compared to the artists featured at the Orange County Museum of Art. Based on her extensive research in this field, she received two grants from Asian Cultural Council in 2006 and 2015 and received the Creative Capital Warhol Foundation Arts Writers Grant in 2008. She is on the faculty of the School of Visual Arts in New York City. She earned her Bachelor of Arts at Brandeis University and her law degree at Northeastern University. Barbara Pollock comes to us today from New York City. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Barbara Pollock. Hi. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. Let's start with uh, you having spent some four years getting acquainted with some hundred or so uh, talented Chinese artists and then winnowing it down to the 25 artists whose exhibit comes to Newport Beach for its, as I said, only West Coast appearance. These artists are mainly born in the 1980s, exception, I guess, is one in 77. After All this after your wild, wild East work. That was a whole new work for you. Um. Yes, I had been spending about 10 years uh, traveling back and forth to China and interviewing some of the leading artists. Um, But after I finished writing the book, The Wild Wild East, which pretty much summed up that first 10 years of my experience, I was very interested in looking at what was coming down with the future. Barbara, you're breaking out a little bit. Is there another position you can put your landline in or somehow? It's very choppy. Um, Your location, can that change a little bit? Yeah. Okay. Let's try that. Uh, Back up in the last couple of sentences there. Okay. Sorry about that. Now, do you hear me? This is pretty smooth. Okay. Um, When I was writing the book, The Wild Wild East, I was trying to sum up what it was like watching China develop the huge art scene that it has today, and it involved interviews with a lot of the leading artists of that generation, a generation that emerged in the 1990s. But when I got done with that book, I wanted to see what the future was going to bring. So I began interviewing artists 
Um, my cutoff year was 1976, which is the year that Mao died. I wanted to interview young artists who had had no experience of growing up with Mao and totally were products of the new China, the open-door policy, the one-child policy, and the expanding economy. So, um, so I began going around studio to studio, doing about four or five studios a day. Well... I, and I, I recognize, Barbara, that um, there is a uh, a good deal of discussion uh, of these with these artists, their peers, and the art scene in general. There, there's a lot of market discussion. So I'd prefer that we can try our best to focus a bit more on the cultural and the political aspects of the art that we see in this exhibit. So we are uh, first at the entrance. We're treated with a heady set of introductions to the artists or the or gallery proprietors via video productions. And let me pause here, folks. I'm recommending right now a, a, a scant four hours, your first trip over there to give yourself sufficient time to take in the exhibit. There's so much coming off of those videos. So uh, they these artists, uh, one of them speaks directly to the one-child policy. And you, in a part of the video, you talk about the pressure cooker that in which all these self-stars come from. Why don't you tell us about what sets this generation of artists apart from their predecessors in contemporary art? Yeah, uh, the vast majority of artists in this exhibition are single children. They don't have brothers and sisters. And in China... Um, this generation is often labeled the little emperors because they grew up as rather spoiled children having all the attention of both their parents and all the grandparents. But what I found is there's a downside to that that a lot of the artists were experiencing, which is there's enormous pressure on them to succeed. They are the one child that has to carry the family name into the future and also support uh, the grandparents um, in their old age. So for artists, we tend to think of artists as growing up carefree and rebellious and bohemian. But in China, a lot of times what happens is a child is picked when they're in kindergarten as having talent for art, and then they go through a training much like what we do with Olympic athletes, where from childhood into college, all they do is practice art making. And by that I mean realist painting. Um, it's a lot of pressure on them to be able to have a career and por perform financially as a result of their art career. And as you, well, they're, they're, the marketplace, I really want to dodge that, but I guess they, they do get acceptance from their families. Uh, I mean, eventually all of these that are here uh, in the exhibit, correct? Oh, no, they have enormous, being an artist in China is enormously respected. Yes. Um, yes. And so they get support from their families in pursuing this as long as they're successful. Okay, and that's and that is a, a sort of a Chinese uh, aspect of, um, of of rising, uh, rising and taking taking numbers, taking uh, exploiting the opportunities that come your way in in a, in a special way. Uh, so, um, I, as I talked about at the entrance, that we, there's those videos, and then you. Uh, uh, well, one other thing that we also want to bring up that's, uh, that sets them apart from their 
uh, previous contemporary uh, arts uh, artisans there are is the immediacy of the internet and the opportunity for world travel inward and outward of China. China's not so isolated physically as well as uh, cybernetically. So uh, that that has you can talk a bit to that. Yeah, feature. well, previous generations of Chinese artists grew up in a very isolated country. China did not have relations with a lot of other countries and had a fear of Western influences. This new generation comes of age when McDonald's and KFC and Starbucks and Louis Vuitton invaded China. And so they have been exposed to international art movements and international pop culture. Um, even though there's some amount of censorship in China, well, there's a lot of censorship in China, all of the artists I know know how to get around the rules and find what they need to find. So, and many of them travel extensively. So they no longer are playing catch-up with the West. They very much grow up knowing as much about Western art as artists here in the United States. And so let's talk a bit about those themes and then get into uh, some of the interactions uh, with the government that may uh, pose uh, some limits and how they navigate that. The, the, just the exhibits, themes that w- you start with, gestures of rebellion, then nature and the urban landscape, then gender, sexuality and intimacy, then Buddhism and family ties. It's a uh, starting, folks, after the video, you take a left turn and make a clockwise um, move around to follow those particular themes. So, uh, Barbara, I, to your credit, uh, you've said in an earlier interview, I got to hear uh, in preparation, uh, that the Chinese government's backed off of contemporary art. And I'd like you to explain a bit more about that, because I think you understand uh, many levels of how the government's operating its guiding principles, should we say. Well, I don't think anybody really understands how the Chinese government is operating. Well, we got to talk about that. We had a whole a one and one-third interviews about understanding China accurately. And so you're right when you say that. Yeah, and so much happens that's just purely arbitrary that it's really hard to know how to navigate China. And so many of the artists in this exhibition feel like, yes, there's censorship, and maybe from time to time a work of theirs will be pulled out of an exhibition, but that's just the price of doing your career in China. Um, They don't view it as oppressive or really changing what artwork they're going to make. Uh, And I really have to say this. I mean, things like the Internet are strictly controlled in China. TV, movies, things that reach a wide audience are very strictly controlled. But Contemporary art doesn't reach that many people. I mean, as much as we love it, even in the United States, it doesn't reach that many people. So the government has bigger problems to concentrate on than censoring all of contemporary art. Basically, what gets shown in galleries, galleries, private galleries can get away with a lot. Um, What gets shown in museums are more carefully um, controlled, but... Um, I, the I, government has sees contemporary art as part of proving to the world that it is a world power. Right. So it's kind of a soft power strategy of theirs to promote contemporary art. Well, I'm, as I see it, is that the 
operating principle is about keeping the crowd small. You're, as you're saying, maybe not that many patrons gather there, but there, so there's a one-on-one with the artist and the, the viewer. It's not a large group, but it, 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 there could be more congregating and as more and more followings get more. Yeah, but we're talking about that China has one billion people on the Internet. Right, right. And maybe it has 100,000 people interested in contemporary art. Right. And, but, and the other operating principle is it's okay to show something political if you're using the icons of another frame of reference, that is another country, another society. And uh, it could be what that political statement could be that the artist is applying that toward a domestic issue. But as long as it doesn't look like a Chinese icon, it's, uh, it's okay. I, I, I think that as long as it doesn't look like it's specifically attacking the Communist Party system in China, you can get away with a lot. Certainly we see artists in this show examining the environment and the impact of pollution. We see the one-child policy examined. We see the generation gap examined. We see a lot of social issues examined, but... You know, these artists are sophisticated artists. They work in metaphor. So it's not like posters for a political movement. These are works of art. They, they're more multi-layered and nuanced. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, because they're nuanced, I think a lot of times the censors in China don't get what it's about. So uh, it's a, uh, as I, I re- I've referred to the, uh, the the gun. Um, maybe you could talk about that artist, uh, what he's accomplished with his work uh, that you show in the uh, the first gallery. Yes, um, the artist is Zhao Zhao. He's a young artist who, when he first came to Beijing, his family knew Ai Weiwei's family, so he went and apprenticed for Ai Weiwei for about seven years, and. He hasn't been working for him for about the last three years, but he's gone off on his own and is making work that's equally as politically charged as Ira Way's work. The piece we have in the exhibition, he got hold of a handgun, which is very difficult. I really don't know how he did that in China. And he shot bullets into panes of glass and mirrors. And for him, it partially reminds him of the way the windshields of cars looked when they were splattered with bullets during Tiananmen Square, which he was quite young when that happened. Or, um, but it also, especially the piece we have where it's bullets into a mirror, it's almost like when you try to attack the government, you, the bullets look like they're shooting back right at you. It's very hard to take a stance and criticize the government without that coming back to really hurt you. And I think that piece really encapsulates that feeling. That feeling, and then it's very cosmic. It's sort of down to that local, and he talks about the the treatment as having a sort of a, um, a an astro, not astrological, but a, a, an astronomic kind of quality to it. Yeah, he calls it constellations. He feels like it looks like collections of stars. So then um, I... I've... And you see, because he calls it constellations, yes. he may be able to show it more readily than if he called it Tiananmen Square. Right, and this is the same artist. Uh, he did have to figure out... Uh, he, he has had his work confiscated uh, from time to time, as you say, not, not that far long ago. And he's in the video talking about a... a 
what's called um, officer, and it's a large. I'm not sure which kind of rock is it. Ugh, is it granite? Um, it's a large, a police figure that he's taken apart into sections and he lays them down on the ground. Well, and- actually, what he did was he sculpted a towering pic- a figure of a policeman and then broke it. Right. So it's the broken statue on the ground. And when he showed that um, in Beijing, he got into a lot of trouble. Um, and he did it right around the time of Ai Weiwei's arrest. So it, people were very sensitive then. And, and this would be the type of police officer who had come and arrested Ai Weiwei. So it was a pretty pointed critique of the police state. And that piece was um, confiscated. And from time to time, he's had trouble getting work out of the country. It's got seized in customs, which is one way that China censors work. Um, and But other times, I mean, he just recently had a successful show in New York City. So other times he hasn't had a problem. So as I said, it's pretty arbitrary. Right. Well, and I, when I mentioned how much time I'm suggesting listeners and uh, prospective patrons spend here, I, I mean that because it's you need to stay with the, the performance art piece in that first section, the first gallery, with the, this young artist, young lady talking about uh, her her childhood, her art, um, her upbringing. I, I want you to stay with her. We're not going to let Barbara meet. We're not going to say how that video ends. But, but it's need, pretty intriguing, right? It, it's very intriguing. And so I I, I want you to uh, stay in there and watch that entire performance piece because it's a, it's, it's a marvel and it's, it's, it's ingenious. It's, it's, it's deceptive what you think. Oh, all right. I think I know, I know what she's saying and I'm going to move on, but you may, you are not allowed to move on. You really need to see the whole But thing. I will say this about the videos in the show. There are a number of videos in the show. Video is a very strong medium in China right now. Okay. Many, many artists are working as video artists. And, but I purposely picked videos that are, um, not that long. I think the longest one is like 12 minutes. So um, you can stick with them pretty easily or see at least a part of them pretty easily. But the ones in the front, the introduction to the artists and the gallery owners have a commentary on art in China today. That's that's a much longer commitment, and it's, it, it really is a highly recommended uh, investment right. of your if time. If you want to get to know the individual artists in the shows, I went to China last year with a young filmmaker, and we interviewed about 15 of the artists in the show. And those are each five-minute interviews that show their work, shows their studio, shows a little bit about their lifestyle, and has them comment on their work. And those are, you don't have to see them all, but they're they're really helpful in terms of figuring out what this generation is about. If you've just joined us, my guest is Barbara Pollock, curator of the current exhibit. She's put together My Generation, Young Chinese Artist, now at the Orange County Museum of Art in Newport Beach, here on Ask a Leader at KUCI.org or on the local radio station KUCI 80.9 FM in Irvine. As I said, this is the only appearance on the West Coast. It runs until October 11th. So... um 
let's talk about some others. I, I'm not going to ask you your favorites because they're all your favorites. Um, th- there's so many textures. Uh, the uh, I guess technique, we're not giving anything away. There is a one woman who's figured out a way to, to paint ink over the grain of wood and then put it, the, lay that silk over other pieces of found items. It's a, the, when I was talking about technically, yes, these this pe- is an artist. Her name's Hu Yen. And literally what she's doing is painting grain, the, the grain of wood onto silk and then stretching it over white boards. So you think you're looking at uh, white wooden boards, but what you're really looking at is a painting of wood grain. It's really, it's really remarkable. She has a chance to talk about that. And there's uh, then uh, I just... Uh, I'm hopping around. This is not an exhaustive reference. There's, uh, let's see, Lian Yuanwei, who has, uh, in her triptychs, given us a, a, a sort of, a given a, her uh, honoring of the meticulous work done in the many factories around with uh, her very, very careful, uh, very detailed paintings. Right. Her paintings, from across the room, you swear you're looking at silk fabric. And when you come up close you see that she actually has created the look of the fabric with this uh, meticulous oil painting. And they're pretty fascinating to look at. And the, 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 I'm, so that it doesn't sound like we're just um, traipsing through here, there, there's hard work, I'm thinking, in um, watching the video Disruptive Desires, Tranquility, and the Loss of Lucidity by Huang Ron. Huang Ron. And that 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 was a um, that was a tough one to watch. Really? Well, I I thought I there was something uh, there was an intergenerational transgression implied there with the the female. Yes. So that's what I mean. It was sort of a, it was a, that was. But there's also a lot of humor in the show, and so yes. I don't think that should be ignored. You know, we oh, have, lots of humor, absolutely. Um, you know, right in the same room as the Wang Ron video is a video by a group of guys called Double Fly who are sort of, yes. you know, I mean, they try to be as outrageous as possible. They're very they've fly. Done, they've done things like stage sit-downs in the middle of Hong Kong or Basel and, um, <laughs> you know, have done things in museums and at fashion shows. And so they have one called Double Fly Saves the World, where they show they're all dressed in rubber masks of political leaders and Osama bin Laden and other people, and they're all cavorting in a kind of orgy scene. Right. Um, You know, and it's hilarious. It's 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 very hilarious. Yeah, it's just really funny. It's very funny. Well, I have to bring the program to a close. I'm so glad that, Barbara, you were able to give us some time on the show today. Barbara. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Barbara Pollock is curator of the current exhibit she's put together, My Generation, Young Chinese Artists, showing at the Orange County Museum of Art and the materials that folks you can find at the ACMA uh, website, all the particulars of when the hours are. So, Barbara, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. All right. Next week, the plans are to uh, raise our understanding of the Trans-Pacific Partnership with UCI Law School professor, that's Greg Schaffer, and as well, we'll catch UCI economist Dergio Scapertis 
at an uncanny time. He'll be fresh from his return from his ritual summer sojourn in Greece. We can get a lot done with the folks in our own neighborhood. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. Thank you.